Welcome to Bio and Audio, that's the official name, a podcast where we tell the stories of various African-American elders as a historical project started by me, Christine. Today, our very first elder will be none other than my grandmother, Doris Gaskins, a licensed and ordained minister, teacher, and preacher. So I wanted to talk to you today to get a... I guess not biographical, but an autobiographical review of just your life and what you think about everything and um, everything you've been through and everything you've learned. Um, so I definitely want to start in chronological order. Uh-huh. Uh, that makes most sense. So I want to start with actually your parents. Uh-huh. Um, what can you tell me about your mommy and dad? Well, I guess you know my father was William Warren Keating. My mother was Mary Ellen Ringle Keating. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were married at a very young age. And I was the third child. But I guess technically I may have been the fourth because there was one that was deceased before I was even born. So I had two brothers ahead of me and then there was me. And uh, they had, like I said, they married young. They had um, an expectation marriage, I'll say. You know, back in the day, if someone became pregnant, there was an expectation that you would marry. Mm. Uh, You know, so marrying young and starting off with a family uh, was not the best of circumstances. Uh, my father uh, was what I called the weekend alcoholic. He only drank on weekends. Mm. But the impact of that drinking was felt by the whole family. Mm. Uh, you know, he would come home on Friday night uh, drunk, for lack of a better word, and kind of wreak havoc in the family. Mm-hmm. And that lasted until Saturday. And then on Sunday, he spent the day uh, drinking ice water all day in a mayonnaise jar, I guess sobering <laughs> up. But then he'd go to work um, Monday through Friday, assuming mm-hmm. that it was seasonal time for him to work because he was a laborer on a construction site. Mm. He was what they called back then a hard carrier, hmm. which means that the walls were a plaster back then okay. rather than you know the one-piece sheetrock that we have today. Mm-hmm. Plaster walls. So he would carry the the plaster materials to be, you know, splattered on the walls. So I guess, you know, um, maybe lack of education, marrying young, having children, maybe he found, uh, you know, refuge in drinking on weekends. Mm. And, and that's what he did. Uh, my mother got the brunt of it because mm. she was a recipient of his accusations and you know, uh, things that were said during the week that he would never respond to. Uh, he had a response on Friday night or Saturday okay. when the alcohol loosened his tongue mm. and released him, so to speak. Mm. Um, my mother, she was a working woman in spite of having seven children. She worked cleaning other people's houses uh, I'm not sure what grade she completed, but she was certainly not illiterate. Okay. She could read and very smart uh, in her own way. Uh, 
she did the best she could with seven children. Uh, one was an invalid from birth mm -hmm. and the other one was uh, retarded. Mm -hmm. So she had, uh, she carried the brunt of the family because my father was there as a father figure, but uh, really didn't interact with the, you know, the children so much. Uh, so my mother, um, so there was this um, uh, estrangement between my mother and father, even though they lived together in the same house. Okay. It, it wasn't a loving family, if you will. Mm. But at the same time, I never felt that I was not loved. Okay. Perhaps it just wasn't demonstrated. And, you know, and having said that, you know, my children say that I, my, I was, I'm not demonstrative either, or at least I wasn't toward them mm -hmm. in showing my love. But I think I rectified that with my grandchildren. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, we, we had no problem embracing, saying we love each other, that kind of thing. Whereas mm -hmm. my children, you know, they said they didn't get that. And, but I think they understand why, because I was never shown that. Yeah. And um, I never heard my mother or father say they loved me. Um, and the interesting thing is I dreamed about my mother for years, even in recent years. And it was only until maybe a year, year and a half ago that I dreamt about her. And in the dream, she told me that she loved me. Ooh. And that's what I woke up with. Oh my God, my mother told me she loved me. And mm -hmm. I have not dreamed about her since. Wow. So it was like my psyche was looking for that, you know, Thank because God. prior to that dream, my other dreams, we were kind of like at odds with one another. Mm. But then that dream, it kind of brought it all home. And like I said, I woke up like, oh my God, my mother told me she loved me. Okay. So, you know, so she was, um, she cared a lot. You know, she was a domestic worker, um, but still she had a household to take care of. You know, she cooked for us. Uh, she cleaned. We were very clean, you know. That was like cleanliness, this next to godliness. That was kind of like the uh, the mantra, if you will. Mm -hmm. And uh, so she had a rough life in, in a lot of ways, but she also uh, went to church. She believed in God. And I think that was handed down to me also. And she made sure that we all went to church. You know, my brothers, they didn't think too much of it. But, you know, for me, I loved going to church. And uh, we didn't have a car in the family for so many, but the next door neighbor who had 13 children, they had a car because the husband had a good job and they pretty much took me to Sunday school. Wow, with 13 kids. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know how the logistics of all how that happened, but I'm sure all their children didn't go either, but they took, you know, they took me on Sunday. Okay. And the next door neighbor, uh, Mabel Owens, was my Sunday school teacher. Oh. So, uh, so my parents, um, they stayed together until the last year of his life. Hmm. Eventually, when my children came along, obviously they loved their grandchildren. My father really loved them. And on Saturdays, he would come to the house at 830 Lenton Avenue in Baltimore to see them. And he would want to take them to Woolworths back then. Mm 
Okay. And I let him, and but then it came a time when I said to him, well, you know, you can't take the children if you're drinking. Okay. So he went home and accused my mother of turning his grandchildren against him. Wow. But immediately he stopped drinking. Okay. So Because uh, it was more important for him to be able to come and take his children to Woolworths than it was for him to drink. So he stopped drinking. And I thought, well, that's going to be just what's needed for this marriage to be what a marriage should be. Well, that never happened because, you know, I didn't understand that, but my mother couldn't forget all the things, you know, that took place while he was drinking. And I, and I kind of um, didn't understand why, why she felt that way. Because, you know, mm -hmm. I was still young, relatively young. And um, so eventually things got kind of bad for him to the point where he actually moved out of the house. Mm. And when I got wind of it, he was actually sleeping in his car. Oh. And of course I told him, no, you're not going to do that. You have to come home with me. And he spent the last year of his house, of his life with me. And because she was not happy about that. And when she saw me on church the Sunday following, when I took him in, she didn't speak to me. Mm. But, you know, we took him in anyway. My children adored him. And he was about a year there before he got sick and, and he died. Okay. Yeah. All right. So. Wow. I still have uh, two brothers living, though, Gerald, you know, Uncle Gerald. Yeah. Then I have another brother, Larry. He's the one that's retarded. Yeah. He's been in a group home most of his life. When my mother died, I kept him for a while, but it was a lot for me because I was working and having children and he was going to like a daycare facility. So you had to get him on the bus. You had to be home when he got off the bus, you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So eventually he went to uh, a group home. Okay. And he was with the same lady probably for 20 years plus. Oh, okay. And uh, the last maybe three or four years, uh, the lady could no longer take care of him because she had three other grown men uh, in the same shape. But I think he's 56 now. He was, well, he was born in 54. I made a note of it somewhere because I had a hard time remembering him. Yeah, he was born on September 30th, 1954. Okay. And he's still... Uh, you know, he's still living in the group home. Um, I don't really see him that much, but they do contact me whenever he has to have any kind of medical care, dental mm -hmm. work, or that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. Whoa, wow. So he's young. He's only a few years older than Aunt Kim. Right, right. So he would be, what, 66? Yeah, Aunt she Kim? was born in 60 and he was born in 54. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And as a child, he was very much attached to me. Mm. Uh, everywhere I went during the summer, he tagged along. Okay. You know, so, um, but he didn't really know us, know us, you know. Yeah. Whereas one time he, he would recognize us, but not so much anymore. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
Well, yeah, tell me about your childhood and not just the summers, but during the school years too. But yeah, tell me about your childhood. It's interesting because I am, um, as uh, Rev, uh, Mr. G used to call me, a tortured soul. It seems like I'm never satisfied. I'm not dissatisfied, but I'm always seeking and looking. So the first three weeks of COVID-19, I started writing my life story and I entitled it The Search for Self. Mm. And my earliest memory of being me was when I went to school in the first grade. Okay. And that was uh, memorable because my brother, Freddie, he beat me up in school. For some reason, tore my blouse off of me. And we were going to a two-room schoolhouse right across the branch from where we were living. I don't know why he beat me up, as we said, but when he got home, then my mother beat him. So that's my my recollection of, uh, my earliest recollection of real memory. I I know things that uh, my Aunt Poos have told me during my early childhood, but I don't remember them. Mm -hmm. Just know a couple of things because they told me. I actually remember this incident uh, when I first went to school. And of course, I went to a two-room schoolhouse uh, in Lutherville. It was called College School. I forget the number. Had a number. And then after that, we uh, we were bus to Towson Elementary School. Oh wow! And that's where I stayed uh, from the second grade to the sixth grade. Okay. And uh, in the second grade, I got the f- first and only beating, if you will, in school. They could hit you then. And the teacher was Miss Beatrice Brown. And she was one of the two teachers in the uh, Lutherville schoolhouse, two-room schoolhouse. Well, anyway, she was reading. It was reading time. And I decided I didn't want to hear the story. (laughs) I I just laid my head down on my desk. The next thing I knew, there was a yardstick whacking me across the back. So that, uh, that taught me a lesson right then and there. So that's a memorable thing. Also during um, my time at Towson Elementary School, my brother, Freddie, the same one who beat me up, he, got, he took sick in school. And that's when we found out he had a kidney disease. Mm-hmm. And uh, many years later, he ended up being on dialysis. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so I remember that, but I also remember the good times. I remember uh, uh, in May, we had May Day in school, and we actually had a pole with ribbons, and we wrapped the maypole. You know, there was like a kind of a dance in wrapping the maypole. I really enjoyed that. It was in uh, the fourth grade, when I was nine years old, and we could still have scripture in school that I learned uh, Psalm 24. And I still know the whole Psalm. I may have mentioned some of it during Bible study, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I mean, I still know that whole Psalm from learning it in the fourth grade. So that, and you know, just the teachers in the school and the fact that we were bused. There were children who lived in Towson, but there were, we came from Lutherville uh, Cockinsville, a place called Overly, and as far away as Ricestown. They were all busted oh, wow. to the elementary oh, wow. school. Yeah. So uh, 
So any friends we had, we only saw them at school. Okay. So then after that, I went to Carver Senior High, which was in Tyson. And at that time, that ran from the seventh grade to the 12th grade. Okay. And uh, they were good years there too, except integration came along. Uh, so I think going into my 10th grade, we had to go to Towson Senior High because of integration. Okay. Yeah. How was that? It wasn't that bad, really. Okay. I made a couple of good friends of uh, white girls at the time, and one of them was extremely wealthy, and she took to me, and we had a great friendship. And um, unfortunately, or fortunately, uh, I got pregnant the summer between my 11th and 12th grade. So I only went to 12th grade for maybe a month or so when I knew I had to drop out. Mm -hmm. But this one girl, Carol, we remained friends even after that. And as Providence would have it, uh, some years later, Skip ended up painting and papering her parents, wallpapering her parents' house. Oh, okay. And we kind of, you know, reconnected with that. Okay, cool. And, uh, yeah, and also during the senior high, I, I met my first love, David Bishop. Ooh, we'll talk <laughs> and, about him. Uh, David, he was on the, he was an excellent basketball player. Okay. And of course, you know, we only saw each other at school. Right. I mean, I think there was only one other time or two times that I can think of that I really saw him outside of school, you know. But yet, yeah. I called him my boyfriend. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and I, I just cared so much about him. Not only was he a star athlete, but he was a gentleman. Okay. And uh, I understand he died about two or three years ago. I think he became a Muslim okay. and married and ended up living in Sudan. Wow. And I think that's where he died a wow. few years ago. Yeah. So that was pretty much that in school. Um, I loved uh, junior high, the time I spent at Towson uh, Senior High, even though I was only there from the seventh, eighth, and ninth grades. I had lots of girlfriends, and uh, you were we, were we were called uh, the, the Miss 500s oh, because, you know, we just had it going on like that. It was <laughs> me and uh, my other girlfriend, whose name was Doris, okay. and my other girlfriend, her name was Dolores. Okay. Uh, we're still friends until this day, but I don't really see them that much. Uh, they're, you know, they're all still living. Neither one of them ever learned how to drive, never got their license. Oh, wow. And so our paths just kind of, you know, veered off into different directions. But um, nonetheless, uh, they, they were good days. And I had lots of boyfriends during those days Ooh. that I only saw at school. Okay. Uh, Andrew Amos and Mo Selby, William Selby. He ended up going into the army at one time, but he continued to write me. And at one time, I had a whole box of letters around here somewhere. And you know, my, the, uh, your mother and aunt, they pull them out every now and then and just read them and get a good laugh. <laughs> they write me all kinds of letters. And this one boy rode the bus with me. And um, he asked, could he sit with me the other day? Now I'm very poor. I didn't have any money. That's another story. I had to have public transportation, which was a dime. And a lot of times I didn't have a dime to catch the bus. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. Uh, a friend of mine, her mother worked at a place called College Manor in Lutherville. Okay. Which was on the way to school. And I really depended on her to come by and give me a ride to school. Gotcha. And most mornings that happened. Except one morning that I can remember that it didn't. And I don't know where I got the dime or what. But I don't think I walked to school. So it was a lot going on, you know, during that time. Uh, but getting back to this one boy, he wanted to sit with me on the bus. And he said, if you allow me to sit with you on the bus on the way home, I'll buy you ice cream every day. Because after school, you could buy ice cream. Okay. And so he brought me ice cream. M. Jackson. I won't say his first name. So I had ice cream every day. And not only that, my homeroom teacher in the ninth grade, Gloria McDaniels, I'll never forget her. She kind of took a liking to me. And at the beginning of the ninth grade, she said, now, Doris, if you continue to be a nice girl, I'm going to buy you lunch every day. Ooh. And she did. Wow. William McDaniels. And that taught me how to be a giver, mm. to share. So okay. lots of experiences, a lot of good times. And plus, we had teen center, you know, Saturday nights in the school auditorium. We had teen center. We had, oh. went, you know, we went dancing. And then we'd walk the three or four miles, I guess it was, up to a place called uh, Mr. Lens. It was like a delicatessen run by two black men up in Towson, across from uh, Towson Elementary. And that was the uh, to-go place or the go-to place after um, Teen Center. Wow. Uh, the only problem was that Skip's old girlfriend wasn't ready to let him go. And one Saturday night I walked in there and all her girlfriends were lined up waiting for me. But nothing happened. But oh. I see that look on your face, Christine. Yeah. <laughs> waiting for you for what? <laughs> so that was, uh, had a lot of good times. A lot of fun times in spite of being quote unquote poor. Um, my mother works for people and brought a lot of nice clothes home to me. And there was a place in Tyson, a huge clothes place called The Shopper. Okay. So a lot of my clothes came from there, but they were on consignment from rich people, you know, mm. well, people who were more well off than we were. Okay. I always looked decent. Okay. So the only thing that I didn't like during uh, my uh, high school days was because my mother had to work and we had, she had an invalid child and one that was retarded, we had to rotate staying home to babysit. Mm. So I used to miss the day out of school each week, mm. uh, babysitting. And I did not like that at all. I absolutely loved school, but I had to miss so much time just to babysit. But that, um, instilled in me the fact that I would never have so many children that my other children would have to take care of them in this school. I would not allow that to happen. And my father's drinking made me tell myself I would never marry a man that drank. Mm. And I didn't. Yeah. So, you know, lessons learned from those childhood experiences. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Did yeah. Was there like... um I know you talked about Teen Center on Saturdays. Was there anything like a prom at the end of the year? Well, in my senior year, I would have gone to a prom. Okay. But I was pregnant. Okay. 
and that's the only night I can't I cried because I had to drop out of school was prom night. Oh, okay. You know, but uh, because I was pregnant and because uh, I had Kim in May, so you know, and so that was the only time I cried. Okay. And, uh, so after, so after you had on Kim and you unfortunately had to leave high school what did mm -hmm. you do what did you well, do i got married okay i got married in february of 1960 i got married and i had kim mm -hmm. and then one year later i had kathy mm -hmm. and three years later i had chris mm -hmm. and three years after that i had kia okay so that that finished the t off the team Mm -hmm. And but during that time, um, when I had Kim, Kathy, and Chris, I guess it was, I did some domestic work. Well, even when I was in high school, in the evenings I did domestic work. I'd go to people's houses and clean up a couple of hours. And then when I dropped out of school, I did more ironing. I took it in ironing. People brought their clothes to me to be ironed. Okay. So I did that, and I was able to stay home, you know, with the children. But I ironed all day yeah you know and uh so till this day i don't do any ironing <laughs> because one time i asked my mother what was my gift and she said ironing i'm like ironing i don't want that to be a gift i'm talking about spiritual gift <laughs> anyway that uh so i did a lot of ironing and then uh my friend Dolores, i was telling you about she had gotten a job at Blue Cross and she told me about the opportunities there. But prior to that, I had gone to work in a wire factory wow. in Cockersville. So we were welding uh, baskets. You know the wire baskets you see in offices that you yeah. put in hands Well, we would wire those. Mm -hmm. And I tell you, my hands were horrible looking because little pieces of the wire would get in your finger fingers and sometimes the wire would be uh, dry and oh, it okay. would pop you know when you welded it and not only that there was one lady who had been there for years an old lady and she was a whiz kid and we got it was a you got paid by the pieces that you did hmm. and she really didn't realize somebody else coming in you know doing some of the work which would cut down on her piece work oh. and so she was not nice but i didn't stay there that long Okay. Uh, but in addition to working there, I was also working in the evening at a cleaners at York Road on Towson. Oh, wow. Yeah. But then I worked at Van Poos. Van Poos got me that job. Okay. Skip, Skip took good care of the children, though, whenever I was working. And uh, so then I heard about uh, Blue Cross and Blue Shield. And so I went there and applied and got hired. Cool. And I started out as a file clerk making $58.50 a week. Wow. And when I left there in 1992 or 93, I'm not sure, I was making $70,000. So I went from a file clerk to uh, what they call the coder, to a claims examiner, to a supervisor, to a manager, to a project manager. Okay. So, uh, so Blue Cross was good to me. 28 years. Was that, that's across from Towson, right? It's, it's uh, right on Joppa Road. It has the big red cube out front. 
Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but we started out down by uh, Tyson State University. Okay. And okay. It was a pharmacy there and a little deli, and we had the upper floors. So we went from there to uh, Joppa Road, the big glass building. Uh-huh. And then we had offices in Delaney, across from Tyson Town Mall. I worked there. Then we had offices in Timonium. I worked there. Okay. And then I ended up in Owens Mills. I worked mm-hmm. there. Only, I think, to come back to Joppa Road eventually when I became a project manager. Okay. And that's where I eventually retired from uh, that after 28 years because the, the position ended. Okay. Yeah. So, so that was that for Blue Cross and Blue Shield. Um, so you talked about how you had to leave school because mm-hmm. you were pregnant. So mm-hmm. when did you go back to school and then go on to then get your bachelor's mm-hmm. and master's and all? Well, I, what I did, I took the GED. Okay. And I tell you, it was the hardest test that I've ever taken in my life. I've heard that before. And uh, it was interesting. I was talking to other people who were taking it who said that they had uh, taken a prep class at the community college to prepare them for the GED. And they felt like no way would they pass that test. Wow. So I ended up passing it first time. And I remember just going home being totally, totally mentally drained because uh-huh. it's a five-part test you know math and english and science and uh i forget the other part but you had to write i mean it was just a, it was just hard <laughs> wow. but so then i did that and uh this was while i was working at blue course and blue shield and then i think at the age of 49 i decided that i would go to college and i took a I think I took one class at um, CCB in Baltimore, and I took one class at Morgan, and that's, then I went to Notre Dame. Okay. And that's where I that's where I got my liberal arts degree, undergrad, in Notre Dame, and then from there I went to St. Mary's uh, Seminary and Ecumenical Institute, and that's where I got my master's. Okay. Was that where you graduated from in 2015? No, 13. Uh huh. Mm hmm. Oh, right, right, right. Yes, it was. Uh huh. Uh-huh. I'm trying yep. to remember what year you graduated because I know we all went. Right. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Remember Omar Epps was there? Yes, because his mom graduated with you, yeah, right? She graduated with me. Yeah. And I remember on the program, they separated y'all by gender. Like it was by what people had studied, but I remember they separated y'all from by gender. I, I do remember that. Why oh, did I didn't, didn't even notice that. I had yeah. to look at that. Yeah. In the in the program, I'm like, so what's different about their degrees? Because they're women. Uh, I'm trying to think um, because I think we also had some of the priests who were graduating. St. Mary's had a seminary, and that's for the priests in mm-hmm. training or in school. Yeah. And then they have what they call the Ecumenical Institute, which means a non-denominational, where anybody could go to the institute. Okay. So I'm not sure if that separation may have been the priests 
and all of the uh, uh, people from the Ecumenical Institute. Maybe we were all women in that class. I don't remember. Oh, I'll okay. check that out. Okay. That may have been it. Huh. Okay. Yeah. pivot to a little bit of your love life oh wow <laughs> well like i said most of my boyfriends i saw them in school okay and uh, you know and they write all the all the crazy letters and um so then um i don't know how i got hooked up with skippy your grandfather <laughs> But it was the summer of 1959, oh, wow. I guess. I mean, he, I guess he probably stalked me or whatever. Ooh. And I was young. I was only about 16. Yeah. And he was probably 21. Okay. So he probably took advantage of me, really. Okay. You know? <laughs> but anyway, uh, I ended up getting pregnant. That was my uh, uh, first time I had sex with anybody with him. Oh, wow. And uh, G was the only, G was, was the second person I had sex with. Oh, now, you know, my, Some of my kids, my kids, when we talk, they say, you crazy, only two men, but variety is <laughs> the spice of life and all that. I'm like, well, y'all just go ahead. Y'all live yeah, your own life. I'm happy with it. Yeah, I'm exactly. Hell no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, um, so like I said, Skip and I, we were married for what, 35 years. Mm -hmm. And you know, he just got, did that midlife crisis thing and just got crazy. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was fine. I thought the marriage was fine, but you know, it is what it is sometimes. Yeah. And then I guess uh, maybe five years later, uh, G, G called me and asked me, uh, was I allowed to take phone calls? And I'm like, <laughs> allowed? I'm allowed to take phone calls. You know, I'm 50 years old or whatever. And I'm like, yeah. And I didn't give him my number. Oh, okay. But he How ended up, girl, he ended up calling me anyway. And we probably talked on the phone three or four months before we actually kind of dated, if you will, yeah. uh, because, you know, he was going through with his wife and I'm like, nah, I can't talk to you. You know, so eventually he had moved out from her. Okay. And, um, you know, so, uh, so then eventually I guess we dated what, a couple years or so. And, um, uh, and then he, you know, asked me to marry him. And he said, uh, and the thing was, he said, I want to make sure that you're taken care of after I'm gone. Mm. And uh, <laughs> which I laugh at the day because he was cheap as hell during the marriage. <laughs> he was cheap. <laughs> he was sweet, though. He was so sweet. He was. He was. I mean, but cheap in the sense he didn't just throw money at me, you know. But uh, 
I'd come home from work and there'd be a newspaper or whatever. And, you know, with something at the Maya Hoff or a play somewhere or whatever. You think you'd like this? You know, he said, and I'm like, yeah. And from there, he just took it. I never had to make reservations. I never had to pay or do any. It was always, you want to do this? You know, he took care of everything. So I appreciate that. And he introduced me to, um, you know, the Maya Hoff and uh, a different kind of music. I still never got with his jazz. He loved jazz. But we used to follow this group called the Three Mo Tenors. They were black tenors, and I loved them. And we went to some plays and things. So, you know, from that perspective, he was good. And true to his word, you know, because of him, you know, I get a check every month. One of my checks every month is because of him. So he was true to his word in that respect, you know, that he wanted to make sure I was taken care of. Uh, Yeah. I love Mr. G. I remember when we lived there, he would be in his office, and when he was ready to go upstairs for the night, he would come over and rub you on the head. He uh-huh. always said something nice. Uh-huh. He was never mean, never nasty, uh-uh. no. nothing. No, he wasn't. He wasn't. Loved to talk, you yes. know, and you know, kept his office full of potato chips and uh, sugar cookies and things Ginger like snacks that. snacks and all that. Right, right. Yeah, he was a good person. He yeah. was a good person. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. So that's about it. I, I, them two was it. <laughs> I've been praying, but ain't nobody, God ain't sent nobody, so I don't know. But um, I'm certainly open to a companion. <laughs> okay. Are you open to marriage or just? I'm not sure about marriage. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Because, you know, at my age and, uh, I'm very, you know, I'm settled in my ways. And not only that, also thinking about age, you know, I'm, I'm subject to illnesses, you know, as I get older. And I think about if you're into a new marriage and you don't have a history, you know, and then wanting somebody uh, to uh, take care of you, you know, I think about all those kinds of things. Yeah. <coughs> So, um, but you're open to companionship and fun. I am open to companionship, and I would, I and mean, I would not say never ever marriage. You know, because okay. you just don't know. Yeah, people older than I am get married. You know. Yeah. But right now, just just some companionship, just for some male conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, men have a different perspective on things, and just to talk. You know. Okay. So. So let's talk about you raising your four crazy children. Oh my God. Yeah. I don't know. How was that? (laughs) You know what? It was easy. Okay. I was young. You know, by the time I was 25, I had all four of my children. Mm -hmm. So uh, again, I was young. Skip was very helpful. Uh, When I worked at Blue Course and Blue Shield, I used to work overtime until seven o'clock. And when I came home, they were always fed and bathed, and he combed the hair and did everything. So he made it easy. Oh, wow. He was the disciplinarian. And, you know, he had no problems cleaning the house or even ironing my clothes if need be. Whatever needed to be done, he did. So he made it easy. And because I was young, I had energy. So my biggest uh, hurdle was all the laundry. 
Because mm. at the time we lived in Lutherville, we lived at 609 Seminary Avenue until Kia was a year old, I think. Uh -huh. And we didn't have wash and dryer. So once a week, taking all those clothes to the laundromat. Yeah. That was the thing. But once I got into my own house and had my own wash and dryer, then, you know, laundry wasn't a problem. But uh, I just never sort of being hard, you know. we I was young, so we had a lot of fun. Uh, we went somewhere every weekend. Okay. Uh, one couple summers, we went to Atlantic City every weekend because we had uh, about four other couples and we would caravan and go to Atlantic City. At that time, they had a boardwalk. They had a lot of games, for, uh, rides for children. Mm. So we'd go um, all over the place, uh, to the beach and wherever. Every weekend, we were on the, on the go. Wow. Yeah. And like I said, we had friends that we would visit or they would visit us. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, no, I never thought of it as a burden or sacrifice or anything. It was it was easy raising them. Now I didn't know how they turned out. I didn't say much. <laughs> that everything everything after that is on them. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, they were uh, they were a joy, and I always wanted girls. Okay. So I got girls. Uh, I mean, I had to like, go through some pain to get them, but. Uh, <laughs> But still, uh, no, I, I, I found it relatively easy raising them. Well, that's good. I mean, they used to do crazy things like I would uh, tell them, don't call me. We know they got older and could babysit themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, don't call me if it's not necessary, you know. Yeah. And I remember one time I, I had a secretary most of my years at Blue Cross and Blue Shield, and they knew Miss Diane, and she loved them like, they were her children. And so this one particular day, I was in a meeting and they called Diane and uh, said they need to talk to me. And so <laughs> Diane said, is it important? And they said, yes. Okay. So she gets me out of the meeting and I answered the phone. Can we take our bikes out? <laughs> <laughs> oh so you God. know how I was about ready to kill them, okay? They just wanted to agitate me. <laughs>
yeah. you know, you know, she's coming. And then when she got to high school, I guess during her last year, uh, her counselor had the nerve to say he didn't think she was college material. Wow. Okay. Well, now she's the IEP coordinator for Baltimore City, making about ninety-eight thousand a year. Okay. Exactly. Clearly. <laughs> yeah. So um, now your mother, Chris, I had to go to school for her once in elementary school. She was doing something. <laughs> but then we also learned that I think it was Kathy and Chris. Uh, they were supposed to walk to school to Leaf Walk because we lived on Lenton Avenue at that time. And come to find out, they were taking bus passes from children. And the way they got found there, I, one of my cousins, David Brown, was the transit bus driver. Ooh. And he knew they shouldn't be riding the bus. So they got told on. <laughs> so um, then Kia, I'm trying to think, did Chris get in the fight at Mercy? But Kia got in trouble because... Um, she was given some spelling words and she used all of them in a negative way in a sentence. You, you know, do your words in a sentence. So I got called in. Mm. I'm trying to think when she got in the fight or what how happened to be there. So I'll never forget the nun. I'm sitting there talking there and as she talks about whatever I went there for, she she pulls out this paper and says, Now look at and look at this. And it was key sentences that she had written with all these negative connotations. <laughs> so anyway. So they weren't that bad. No, they really weren't. No, I mean they weren't rebellious or sassy or you know, they just didn't give us any trouble. They didn't even mind going to church because at that time New Charlotte had a lot of youth. Oh and they had this a group called Youth Express. Okay. Where Miss Pat, oh, she, she was the facilitator, and they could go in there and talk and tell her everything and anything, and she would never tell their parents anything. Oh. And until well, you see, until this day, they still you know congregate at Pat's house for every yeah. and anything. Yeah. So they loved uh, going to New Charlotte. So they were too keen on going back for six o'clock service, but. Well, exactly. they weren't there anyway. They sneak off to Druid Hill Park, you know. Oh my gosh! How did they sneak off all the way to Druid Hill Park? Well, what I found out, and this wasn't at six o'clock, but at eleven o'clock, okay. they had this one gentleman there, real sharp gentleman. He worked in a shoe store in Ricestown Road Plaza. Okay. I don't know how Kathy and them befriended him, <laughs> but I think it was him and another man. They offered to park their cars for them on Sunday because at that time we were at Fremont Landville and the park and it didn't have a parking lot. So they were offered to park their cars. Mm -hmm. Of course, they had the keys. And, and, and one of them, I know for sure, he knew they weren't coming to church. They were taking the car. Mm. And he just said to one of them, it seemed like I never had any gas when y'all bring my car back. And he gave him money for gas. Ah, you know, to take his car. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, yeah. That is funny. How did you start going to New Shiloh? Because of my brother. Uh, one of the things he liked was listening to uh, preachers on radio. Hmm. on the radio so 
one night and he'd be always moving the dial and that kind of thing. And my mother heard Reverend Carter preaching okay. on the radio. He used to come on uh, WBAL nine o'clock on Sunday nights. And she heard him and she went to New Charlotte. And then she told me about it. And that's how I got there. Oh, uh -huh. yeah. wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. So speaking of Nishalo and just church in general and even broader religion, how did you choose your, or it probably was a calling, but how did you choose your path into the church and into you preaching and all? Well, when I got to Nishalo, because I didn't know anybody, but Reverend Carter Senior, who was the pastor at the time, uh, he seemed to have this gift of discernment, knowing what people's gifts were, even though they didn't know them. Hmm. And uh, he had asked a woman, she's uh, deceased now, you know, what was my name? And uh, one Sunday, as he was coming up those back steps, going to the pulpit, for some reason I was going down, and he said, how are you, Miss Taylor? And I was shocked that he knew my name. Mm -hmm. And you know, but I didn't think anything of it. And then eventually, I think he said something to somebody about me uh, teaching in the Saturday church school. Mm. And then he formed this group of 100 people. He walked through the congregation and picked out 100 people that he wanted to be in this group called the Stores of Christ. Mm. And he said, "And Miss Taylor, you're going to be the leader." Well, I almost died. You know, I remember going home and saying to my family, "I'm like." You know, who does he, who is he to think that I can be a leader of a hundred people, you know? Yeah. And so that's how it got started. We uh, had monthly meetings and we had books to read and I would facilitate the uh, the book report, so to speak, on at each meeting. And I was the, the lay leader. And then from there, uh, from the other group of a hundred, a lot of them went on to be preachers and deacons and other fields of ministry. But from that group, he then called me to be a deacon. Okay. And I was there a short time when I knew the call was on my life. And um, I, I woke up preaching and, uh, but then when I went to check out the scripture that I was preaching from my mom, that's, book doesn't have this many chapters in it, so you know you can't be calling me. And um, and then one Sunday I was at church and for some reason I stayed in the sanctuary, Fremont Landville. Everybody had gone. Mm -hmm. And I sat down on a chair at the end of the pew and I just didn't feel anything that Sunday. And I just said to God, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Mm -hmm. And he, and and the voice I heard was, well then preach my word. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I didn't want to preach because Skip had been called into ministry. Mm -hmm. And I knew, academically speaking, he was on a different level from me. Okay. You know, and I didn't want to be in competition with him. Okay. I'll just put it that way. Yeah. And I said, uh, you know, I'm telling God, no, I'm not going to do that. And so then he seemed to say to me, well, okay, you're going to use him as excuse. Let me uncover him. And that's when I found out that he was running with all these women and that sort of thing. But I still didn't yield. And then um, uh, 
the church sent us to Atlanta to a conference. Um, and I drove along with a lady named Kathleen Bowen. Okay. And uh, we got there. What year was it? <clears throat> Um, it must have been 92. Okay. Yeah. So when I got there, I think uh, the last session was on a Friday. And I went to an early morning session. And it was about prayer. And then I kind of I got it written down somewhere, but I, I forget what it actually was. But for lunch, we had the mayor of Atlanta speaking. And I forget his name now, but anyway, he says, I come from a long line of preachers, but I'm not going to preach. Hmm. And I'm sitting at a table with nine other people, and I had a little red Bible. Hmm. And as he said that, the next thing I knew, my red Bible was in my hand, and it was open to uh, the fourth chapter of the book of John. Hmm. And I could basically see my initial sermon on those pages. Mm. And I said to Kathleen, who rode with me, I said, we got to leave early in the morning. I said, I've got to get back to Baltimore. I didn't tell her what it was for. But in my mind, I knew I had to get back to Baltimore and do what I dreaded doing, go in and tell him, Reverend Carter, that I was called to preach. And so I made the point to go in to see him. And I sit down and told him, he said, oh, yeah, I knew what you wanted. <laughs> you know, like, what do I tell me? You know, right, exactly. So, <laughs> so that's how it was. And of course, you know, Skip was into his mess at the time and not that supportive of the fact. And then I remember getting my letter giving me my date for my initial sermon. Mm -hmm. And I'm all excited. And he, he was just like a lead balloon on it, you know. Uh -huh. And I felt down about it, but I didn't let it get to me. And of course, he was there when I did my initial sermon. And then, you know, after that, um, you know, he just got, I just kept on doing what I was doing. I used to teach uh, Saturday church school, speaking in the mornings. At that time, we still had a 6 a.m. prayer service. Mm -hmm. But at that time, uh, when we were assigned to, to preach, we had to preach seven days in a row. Oh. So that meant we had to get seven messages together. Mm. And can I tell you, each time we were on a rotating basis, each time it was my time to preach, Skip would pick that time to leave and go and live with her. Mm. And here I am, you know, struggling with trying to get seven messages and dealing with, you know, what was going on there. And, and finally, you know, after three years of just praying about it, I'm like, you know, I got to put an end to this because, uh, you know, he'd come back and he'd leave. And, you know, he said, you know, I, I really, you know, I'm going to give her up. I want to spend the rest of my life with you and blah. You know, all these Academy Award speeches and mm -hmm. didn't mean anything. And uh, at that time, he stopped uh, bringing money in the house. And then I found out he won $15,000 at the racetrack, didn't give me a dime. No. And that really hit home. Because he was always so generous with his money with me, you know? Yeah. Uh, any Saturday, I'd go home from Saturday church school and look under my jewelry box, and he would have left me $100, $200, you know? And yeah. so things like that, it just got to be so much that I decided, you know, I've got to end this.
Yeah. I wasn't happy. And uh, he didn't want a divorce, but he told me he didn't want to be married to me either. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, what's in between? You running the streets and me sitting home? Right. You know? And finally, I just made that decision. Good for you. Yeah. Enough was enough. It was too much. Yeah. So, and then, um, you know, eventually I, I started the church and uh, I just felt like, you know, I had to get rid of him because he couldn't go where God was going to take me. Yeah. You know? That's fair. You can't yeah. take everybody with you sometimes. Right. People include. Exactly. Oh. Exactly. Yeah. So one thing that I wanted to talk to you about was kind of, not kind of, what's going on today with all the protests and the Black community's different reactions to police brutality, um, and also kind of trying to relate it back to the civil rights movement um, and things that happened in really every time before now, 50s, 60s, even mm-hmm. 40s. Mm-hmm. Um, so the difference between the civil rights movement and now, for the most part, it was confined to the South, mm. you know, as far as the marches and things like that. So we didn't really have that up close and in our face with that. You mm. know, we saw it on TV. We knew about the King and all that. But uh, growing up, Although I never had any problem, well, I lived on Railroad Avenue and everybody on Railroad Avenue were black, except at the way far in the, there was a white family, but nobody bothered us. Mm-hmm. And I guess because we seemed to know our place, so to speak, mm-hmm. but I was never called a nigger mm-hmm. or anything like that, you know, from living in Lutherville. And uh, so I wasn't aware of any blatant racism. Okay. Um, the first time that my race was a problem for me was when I went to Blue Cross and Blue Shield. Wow. I understand that uh, the manager, I was the first black person uh, to work in my department. Wow. And I was told uh, that he had gotten everybody together and told them that I was coming and I was black or whatever the term was back then. And he didn't anticipate any problems. Mm. And, you know, but I did hear one girl, one person I know, her name was June, who said, well, she wasn't going to eat lunch with no black person. Mm. Well, I ain't like her no way when I met her, but, you know. <laughs> so I didn't, um, I mean, I didn't have that problem. Like I said, I started out as a file clerk and I made my way up, you know. I, I knew that in the workplace, it was one thing, you know, they had to work with me because I knew my operations and they'd call me in to troubleshoot operations that weren't doing well. So, you know, we got along with, uh, you know, good coworkers and all that. But then sometimes at lunch, when I was at Delaney Center, of course, from Towson Town Mall, when I go across the mall to lunch, mm-hmm. well, another story, like some of them didn't know me, you know, mm-hmm. but, uh, but as far as in the workplace, uh, I didn't experience that. Uh, not only was I the first black in my department, I was the first black supervisor in the company and the first black manager. Mm, 
I did not know that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would have expected you to, well, not expected, I guess assume for you to have to deal with a little more of that. Not to say I, that time. I really later. did. Okay. Because, you know, one thing, um, I knew how to act. It wasn't an act. I mean, I just knew how to carry myself. You know, they always talked about how well I dressed. Mm-hmm. You know, now a couple of little Jew boys, they'd make comments, especially when I got my BMW. Now, that was the talk of Blue Cross. <laughs> oh, my God. So much so that one day an outside auditor came into my office. And when he sat down, the first thing he said was, I hear you have a BMW. So after the meeting, I went over to my boss and I said, Jim, I have a favor to ask you. And I said, I know you can do this, but I need you to get the word out that I need the people to stop talking about my BMW. I spend my money the way I want to spend it. And everybody else spends their money the way they want to. We had these two Jew guys, uh, Alan and I forget the other. We loved them. We had a lot of fun with them, but they were Jew guys. And I'd be sitting at a meeting, one of them said, Oh, Gucci watch. You know, stuff like that. Mm. And I'm like, Alan Mayer, you might want to save all your money, but I'm going to spend mine. You know, so we had that kind of back and forth, but nothing real serious, you know. Mm-hmm. But I, when I traveled, um, usually I would be the only black person. I never did happy hour with them. Because mm. I know when white folks drink. Yeah. You know, and I mean... And one place we went, they even ordered liquor beforehand to take with us. I forgot where we were going. I think it must have been Springfield, Virginia. But they were coming around taking orders for liquor. I'm like, I don't even drink. So that whole week, I had uh, room service. I ate dinner in my room every evening. I was not going to be worried with them. Hmm. And then one time we were in Atlanta, and the, the hospitality room was up on the 49th floor at Peachtree Plaza. And wow. you had to take the outside elevator to get to that. So, you know, I didn't make that one. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I could only call once when I actually had dinner with them. I just didn't mingle with them because, you know, I, I know how loose lips can be when you drink the alcohol. Yeah. And so, you know, but they respected the fact that I didn't drink and, you know, all that. So it wasn't, wasn't an issue. Well, that's good. Mm-hmm. So you seem to have had a mellow life if that's the I think so I think so um so you know with the uh the uh protest and all that are going on now I think they're needful and the downside of that you have the uh outsiders coming in mm-hmm. like the white supremacists yeah. And all those others taking advantage of it and doing the setting on fires and the looting it's not to say that some blacks aren't doing that but they get blamed for all of it, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so that that's problematic. But I was happy to see so many races involved in it for such a long period of time, and it wasn't limited just to this country. You know, Germany and Japan and other countries were on board with us. Yeah. So I think it has, and it is bringing about change. Yeah. Um, we still have that problem of police brutality. It looks like they kind of increased a little bit in retaliation. Yeah. 
And, you know, so many of them have resigned. I'm like, good riddance to bad rubbish. Yeah. So, I agree. Uh, but it's still white privilege, you know, when they uh, took into custody the young man that killed those people at the Bible study. You know, they took him to Burger King. Kings. You know, you know? Stuff yeah. like that. And, you know, they very seldom shoot to kill a white person. Yeah. No matter what they've done. But black people, you know, we end up dead and, you know, you don't have to have done anything. I'm leery. I don't even want, I don't know, if I broke down on the road or something like that, I would not call the police. Me neither. I wouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> call my dad, probably. Yeah, somebody, anybody, because you don't know where you're going to end up, you know, dead or alive. And they, they escalate uh, situations. Yeah, yeah, they they they're not good. They're just and, not good. And that's so interesting. You said that they escalated because what they're supposed to do right. is de-escalate. Exactly. De yeah. Thinking back, there was one incident when I had Kim. Um, we had a health clinic in Towson. I lived in Lutherville, so and it was free. So I would take her to the clinic. That's before I got a private pediatrician. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> to get her shot. So this one day, I'm in Towson walking toward the clinic, and on the other side of the street, there are a group of white officers, not a whole lot of them, but one of them said, oh, there, she, there goes your wife over there, pointing to another. You know, so I, I just ignored it. Wow. You know? Yeah. But otherwise, uh, Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. you know, it, it, I worry about, you know, you all, Carrie, you know, black people in general. Yeah. You know, I saw, I had a, a pregnant black woman on the ground, you know, yeah. sitting on her belly, you know, just all kinds of stuff. Yeah. I've seen a video where, um, at a protest, I've seen a couple of videos like this where the police officers will be in their trucks and they'll just ram through crowds of protesters. Mm-hmm. Which is like, what, what, what is the purpose? But that goes back to what I was saying the other day in Bible study. The cruelty is the point. Right. There's no right. reason that you're doing. There's no reason why you had to do that. Absolutely. But even more important than that, there's no consequence. Exactly. You exactly. Know, it's like Trump. I do what I want. Yeah. So that's. It's sad. You know, it's a sad time. Yeah. But I'm hoping that this is uh, the storm before the calm, you know, that these things have gotten worse and then they're going to get better. But with this coronavirus and Dr. Fauci, you know, projecting that we may see 100,000 cases a day and we don't get our hands around this thing, you know. And then you have a, a president who's doing nothing, no leadership at the top, but I don't depend on him anyway for anything, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. As a people, and even with starting with the fa the, the family, we have got to. That's why we have to be close knit. We've got to help each other out. You know, we've got to be there for each other, because you can't depend on other people to do it. Yeah, I agree. You just can't. How do you feel about the just the virus and its effects? on life now well it's 
it's something to get used to. I mean, I, I had maybe two or three days since March, but I just felt like, oh my gosh, it's too much, you know, to be at 77, to have lived a, a certain kind of lifestyle, and now all of a sudden you're confined and you can't go this place and you can't go that place. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, though, I'm, uh, my health is more important than any place that I would want to go. Yep. You know, uh, so I'm fine with it now. I'm working, I'm back to work a couple of days a week for a couple of hours. Okay. It's only like four of us in the office. Okay. So, uh, and my back is to all four of them. Okay. So, uh, and I'm just working to pay off some bills. And once I pay off them bills, I'm not, I'm not going to work. <laughs> just, I mean, I'm tired. I really am. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, I, pay, I made these damn credit card bills and I got to pay them. Yeah. But once that's done, I'm done with work. Okay. Although, you know, initially I, I enjoyed it because it got me up and bathed mm -hmm. and dressed and out of the house. But now mm -hmm. I'm at the point now where I really want to uh, not work and I want to really spend more time studying the Bible. I want to be a better teacher. You know, I want to, and hopefully in some ways that will make me useful mm -hmm. to people that I meet or come in contact with. Because I don't know of anything other than God and the word of God is going to get us through this stuff. Yeah. You know, you, you, that's where the hope is. And, you know, that's what I say. You go back and, and read that Old Testament. You know, it was war all the time, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, um, but like I told many people, the thing that I felt the Spirit speak to me back in October was that God was going to deal with Donald Trump in a way that we could never imagine, but there would be collateral damage. Mm. And I think we're seeing that. And I also felt around about the same time that women were going to become more prominent mm. and you know, leadership and that sort of thing. And you know, mm. then I think, well, you know, but women, we, we have to be prepared, you know? Yeah. To step in in whatever capacity, you know, God sees fit to uh, place us in. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. You know, my main concern about the virus is the uh, children not being able to go into school. Because who's it going to hurt urban children? The most. Yep. The most. And who are they, for the most part? Black children? Black. Yep. So that's uh, that's a real concern, you know. That's like little Kathy. She was she's supposed to teach Tuesdays and Thursdays when school was open, mm -hmm. and the children in her class were to come on remotely. Well, most of the time they didn't show up, mm. and they had you know they had computers. At least they were given computers. But you know, you don't know what kind of household they're living in. No computers may have been sold for drugs or whatever. Yeah. Or the parents just didn't think it was important to make sure that the children were online to get the lesson. Wow. So it's just so many facets of this thing. But the bottom line is that urban children are going to be hurt the most. 
So here you have the third grade pipeline again leading to prison. Yep. Which is which I feel like is probably part of the 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 reason for such inaction. I know it has to do with money too, because yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. back up. Yeah. But th that's still money because they need more people it is. to be I in mean, Trump so can get free labor. Trump knew about this thing. He did not jump on it. He could have given a national mandate yep. instead of uh, saying it was a hoax. Yep. She's now saying this Russia, these Russian allegations are a hoax also. Mm -hmm. He did nothing for six weeks. And then, you know, relegated everything to the states. Didn't give the states what they needed as far as, you know, ventilators and equipments. Lied and say Obama didn't leave him with any ventilators. Come to find out, he was left with 6,600 ventilators. And they didn't even, dis you know, dispense them. Yeah. <clears throat> All because he didn't want it to look like it was a problem and uh, have a negative impact on his chance for re-election. Well, guess what, bro? You can forget about re-election, I think. Yeah. With this way this thing has gone, and now these uh, Russian allegations about our military, we send them over to fight a war and somebody pays to have them killed. And now he said, that's a hoax. It's not a hoax. You're, he's in bed with Putin. Yep. That's scary. Now that's more scary than anything because it threatens our democracy. Yeah. It might not be perfect, but it's a whole lot better than what other countries have. I mean, Trump wants to be a dictator. Yes. And I don't want to live under a dictator of no kind. And yeah. that's the scary part of this whole thing for me. Yeah. What's it doing to the country? And, you know, so much uh, violence is just a response to fear. You know, the fear that people have, they don't know how to express it any other way, but the violence. Not to make excuses for them, but I think that's a reality. So I do have a couple more questions. Okay. Um, and if I'm talking too much, tell me. Oh, girl, please. No. <laughs> so um, I remember... I want to say I was in the ninth grade and you, I think, had just gotten uh, the diagnosis that you had breast cancer. Mm -hmm. How was, how was it dealing with that? It was, um, first of all, it was God that made me know it. Mm. because I hadn't had my mammogram in two years. Mm. And one day at work, I was setting up uh, the room for a party for a coworker who was leaving. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and as I'm setting up the table, it had to be spirit that says, you need to get your mammogram. Mm. And after I finished setting up, I went upstairs to my office and I called and made the appointment. Mm -hmm. I went to my appointment, they took the mammogram, and they called me back and showed it to me. And there was a, a little dot on the mammogram with a little tail heading back toward my armpit. 
Mm. And they said, you know, you need to have a biopsy. Prior to that, I had had, I think, four surgeries on my right breast for cyst, uh, suspicious mammogram, whatever, and everything had been benign. So with this one, with the right breast, I'm like, okay, this is probably, you know, benign too. So when uh, I went and had the biopsy done, and then I remember getting a call at work, you know, and they told me that it was malignant. And uh, I, don't, I didn't really fall apart. Okay. You know, I was concerned and I never thought I was going to die from it. I never thought that. Um, so then I went and had the uh, surgery to remove the, the lump and to check my lymph nodes. And it came back that it had gone to some of my lymph nodes. Hmm. Even then, I, I still never thought about death. Uh, when I started doing chemo, that was the worst thing in life. I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. Mm. I mean, you know, chemo just rendered you completely weak, that you can't even lift your head up off the pillow. You know, no appetite. I lost like 20 pounds and so much so to the point that at one point I had made my mind I wasn't going to take any more chemo. Mm. And I told Kim and I told G, G went with me to every appointment. And so when I made this decision, G went with me as usual. And then Kim went with me also. They were going to be my support system for telling my oncologist that I was not going to do any more chemo. Okay. And I sat there in my little weak voice and I had it all written down on yellow paper and told him all the reasons why I was not going to take any more chemo. I said, I'm not afraid to die. It's well with my soul. <clears throat> he listened to me. <clears throat> then he got up in my face and he said, yes, you will. You will take this chemo. He said, because I told you that if we don't get it now, if it comes back, I can treat it, but I can't cure it. Those two support persons on the, that's right, Dr. Markin, you tell her. <laughs> <laughs> I looked at them too and looks to kill, they both would have fallen dead in that doctor's office. So that was an experience. Uh, like I said, just no absent when I said no energy. And of course, you know, I went bald, lost all my hair. Yeah. And that bothered me at first. I mean, I cried for 30 seconds. And I looked in the mirror, and all I could see was my brother, Gerald, looking back at me. Like, yeah, oh you know, it's <laughs> like twins. You know, but then I got over that, and uh, then, you know, it was the rate six weeks of radiation, five days a week. Wow. And that was, uh, the radiation itself wasn't painful, but I had to lay like this. Mm -hmm. And after a while, you lose the circulation in your arms. You know, because blood doesn't go up like that. And mm. that hurt so bad, I cry. Wow. And then after a couple of visits, I said, I'm not going to cry anymore. I'm going to pray my way through the pain. And that's what I did. I started praying for other people that I had met who were going through chemo and radiation. Took my mind off my pain. Mm -hmm. And then um, 
toward the end, my last week, just when I was just about finished, uh, the radiation had burned me so badly that I had to stop for a week. Because, you know, you could just lift up my breath and rub my hand across the skin would just fall off, you know. So, uh, yeah, so I had to stop for a week and then finish my last week out. So that was... Um, yeah, they had said, you, you think this chemo is something of radiation? There ain't no walk in the park. But to me, comparatively speaking, radiation was a walk in the park compared to chemo. Wow. <clears throat> you just had to go for what, six or seven weeks every day. And then they had this big machine that, you know, come down, goes across you. And, you know, it's just, uh... wow. and then they took a mole of your neck that you would lay in each time you went. And, you know, they mark you up for the radiation and this big red light across you. You know, the machinery and, uh, you know, changing the positions and just, you know. It was intimidating. That. No, it wasn't. <clears throat> the nurses and all, and they were just delightful. Uh, matter of fact, when I was going through radiation, when I started crying, it was the male nurse. And he was so, you know, sorry and upset that I was crying. And he was a visiting nurse. You know, you have nurses who travel the country mm -hmm. and they're needed. But he was so sympathetic and kind. And even when I took chemo, you know, they set me down and explained everything and told me that, you know, I could have reactions or something like that. But there was no reaction that I would have that they weren't equipped to take care of. The last chemo, I took three kinds of chemo. The last one I took was called Taxotere. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had given me a pamphlet to read. And I tell you, I read it before I started it. When I got there, I was in a wreck. All the, the negative things the pamphlet said about it. Mm -hmm. And I was just a wreck. And then one of the nurses, because I, <clears throat> I had pretty much the same nurses, and she said, what's wrong? And I told her I read that. She said, I don't even know why they give that to patients. And she said, do you mind if I pray with you? And she prayed with me and calmed me down. Yeah. You know, so. Uh, <clears throat> so like I said, it's not anything I want to repeat. And, you know, there are people there who cancer came back and they're going through it again, you know. Yeah. And I had a port put in because, uh, and that's where I get my chemo because the chemo has a tendency to, to burn your veins. So they didn't want to give it in my wrist because the, so they give you a port yeah. that stays in until after you've finished all your treatments. And then when they give you the chemo, they put the needle in that port. So they don't oh. have to do your, do your veins. Oh, that's good. You didn't have to yeah. get stuck so many times. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Oh. So, uh, so it was an experience. Um, it's interesting. There was a, a, a lady in my class at St. Mary's and she went through uh, breast cancer treatment just about the same time that I did. Mm. <clears throat> and she's a friend on Facebook. And, you know, she still talks about the experience, you know, the anniversaries and all that. And sometimes I just try to stand her, let it go. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't know. But that's her, you know, I'm, I was different, you know, it's mm -hmm. just... It's something that happened to me in life and God saw fit to it. It didn't kill me. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't like this bald spot in my hair so much. I used to have nice thick hair. Yeah. 
But, you know, I, I live with that too. It's, it's okay. Yeah. But there is, um, even the times when I didn't, when it wasn't malignant, God still used me. I was uh, at my doctor's office once for a follow-up after they did this thing called a needle biopsy in my left breast. I think it's needle about yay long. And they stick it down in you to get a biopsy. Mm. And anyway, so I was at my doctor's office with a follow-up, and this woman was in there just sobbing. And I think she had gotten, you know, bad report that, you know, it was malignant. So I followed her out of the office, and, you know, I tapped on her shoulder. I said, I kind of feel like you must have gotten a bad report. You know, she said, I did, I did it. She's just crying. And I said, well, I just went through the biopsy, needle biopsy. And I said, you know, everything's fine with me. And I said, you shouldn't claim that, you know, just think positive that it's going to be okay. And uh, after she had it done, her husband called me and told me that if there was no malignancy. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. And I didn't, obviously, I didn't talk to him after that, but it's just how God can put you in places, you know, yeah. and use your experiences to comfort other people yeah so um yeah one time i think the the one time i had these things called calcifications in my breast that showed up on the mammogram and they thought they could become cancerous so i had to go and have to have them removed mm -hmm. i was so afraid christine that they were gonna say it was cancer i told them i did not want to be put to sleep oh wow and I'll never do that again because, you know, they numb me, but then they cauterize it. So you can kind of smell your flesh burning and all that. Yeah. And each time they stick me to re-numb me, I'm like, I ain't never going to do that again. <laughs> yes. No, that's how go to sleep. Uh-uh. Oh, yeah. After that, I'm not, I'm not doing that again as much as I hate being put to sleep. So it was an experience, but, you know, um... I have a friend, childhood friend, who has a daughter, and I guess she's in her 50s now, her daughter. This child has had every kind of cancer imaginable. Wow. Surgery after surgery after surgery. When she first got sick, she had a boyfriend, and, you know, he left her and all that. But she has, I can't tell you how many surgeries Debbie has had and all the kinds of cancers, and she still fights it. Mm. So, you know, mine is nothing. Yeah. You know? And I lived. Yeah. One of my neighbors down the street, Cassandra, she uh, developed pancreatic cancer. Oh, and wow. she was 39. She had three children. And they had moved from the neighborhood, but I found out about it. And I went to visit her. And I felt so bad. Because she was, you know, in bed and she was just so down and sad. And here I am, you know, twice, not twice her age, but in my 60s or 70s, early 70s at the time, looking like a picture of health and she's struggling with pancreatic cancer, yeah. you know, and got to the point where they had an early graduation for one of her children and she didn't make it, you know, yeah. she was 39. Wow. You know, and here I've seen my children grow up, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. So, you know, 
it was just part of my journey. So how do you deal with, I want to say grief, but I really mean difficult times in general and moving on from those difficult times. How do you Mm -hmm. deal with those? Um, And then my marriage with Skip was really a hard time for me. Mm -hmm. I went through a real hard time with that, the depression and the crying, you know, I cry all the way to work and then get myself together before I got on the parking lot before I went in. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and interestingly enough, I had uh, two women who reported to me and they were both going through something with their husbands. Okay. And I'm trying to hold myself together and uh, one of them will come by and tell it ain't easy and keep moving. The other white woman, she come and stand in my door and give me a whole litany of my, her husband. And I just felt to myself, you all, you don't get the hell out of my office and let me free, let me you know? But right. that, that was a hard time for me. But prayer, you know, I used to go into prayer every morning, make that six o'clock track. And for three years, I just prayed about it before I decided that I was going to end the marriage. Mm. You know, it didn't, then once I made the decision, and not only that, I'll never forget one night, you know, I'm just tired of crying. And, you know, he had stopped sleeping with me and sleeping on the couch and all that. And one night I just simply, I said, God, I'm tired of crying. I don't want to cry anymore. Take the love I have for him away from me. Mm. And after that, I felt totally different toward him. And, you know, that's how I got through it. death um you know ronald's death kind of hit you in the gut because it was so sudden and unexpected but you know but for older people you know it's gonna happen yeah you know you don't rejoice or anything like that but it's a different feeling that you know because one day it's gonna be me yeah and um you just know it's just a part of life and it's going to happen. And, you know, you just get through it the best you can. As devastating as it can be for, you know, the family and and that kind of thing. Or if you know people who have suffered for a long time, you know. Yeah. Death is kind of like welcome. Uh. So, you know. I mean, even with my brother, uh, Tim, you know, he was two years, it was two years, uh, this past Monday, I think it was, but you know, he was on a ventilator and the thing that I've learned from this, uh, coronavirus is that, uh, most people on ventilators don't live. Yeah. You know, and when he went into the hospital, he was at 4% lung capacity. Wow. Yeah, you know, he was on oxygen all the time. And I never thought he was going to survive it. I just, you know, I had just prepared myself for that. Hmm. What was your fondest memory of Uncle Tim, speaking of? Well, the one thing that I did as a result of him, he was, you know, he was um, very intelligent. He went in the army, had lots of experiences. You know, he was in Africa for a while, tracking one of the space 
I forget which one it was. So he was very intelligent. He went to Johns Hopkins University. Mm -hmm. And when I saw him going to college, that's what gave me that nudge to go mm -hmm. to college. Okay. And you know, he, he was just sharing, you know, his knowledge with me. And so, so I had good memories at the same time, whenever he was into some adventure, you know, he wanted everybody to buy into it. And most people weren't even interested in what he was doing. Yeah. But he almost wanted to force people to do it, you know. Mm -hmm. And but um, and when it was his time to babysit, like I told you, we had to watch our siblings. Mm -hmm. Well, he sat up and read all day, and the house be falling falling down around him. He wouldn't wash dishes. He wouldn't do anything. He read. Okay. So, uh, so uh, but he was very proud of me. Uh, respected me as a, a minister and would listen to me. Okay. Yeah. Who's older? Is, are you older than Uncle Tim? No, he's two years older. Okay. He would have been 80 this past June 24th. Okay. Yep. Hmm. Okay. So his birthday was June 24th and he died on June 28th of uh, 2018. Right. Uh, Uncle Tim. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I have some miscellaneous questions. Mm -hmm. Give me one second. And these are they're not rapid fire so don't rush to answer it if you don't have an answer answer okay. when you have it okay okay so give me one word that you would use to describe yourself best describe yourself determined mm, determined okay um what was or what is your biggest accomplishment? Mm. I think it would be organizing a church, greater faith. Okay. okay. What? What was the moment, this is a weird question, what was the moment you knew you were a grown-up, an adult? Hmm. I guess when I had my first child. Okay. Um, what was... Tell me about a time where you cried good tears. As in tears of joy? Yes. Okay. <clears throat> wow. I, I guess think when I think about my family, Okay. Yeah. All right. 
What? Tell me about your favorite memory during a holiday, like Christmas or Easter. Or mm. Wow. Again, just when families, uh, family dinners. Okay. Be it Thanksgiving or Christmas. Oh, a bonus question. Do you have any good, well, tell me about any good holiday memories with your mom and maybe even your grandma? No. Well, I'll go back to my grandmother. <clears throat> Her birthday was in December. Oh, okay. So for a number of years, Aunt Poos, her daughter, mm -hmm. would have a birthday party for her. Okay. At Aunt Poos's home. And we would all go there. And, you know, we'd always take a car with money because she was up in age. So, you know, and uh, one year, uh, one of the grandchildren, Norman, said, he said, I'm just going to give you the money because I noticed you weren't reading the cards anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, with my mother, yeah. Christmas was interesting because we had a room that we called the parlor, the parlor, P A R L O R, that we didn't use in the winter because we didn't have central heat. Okay. And it was a cold room. Uh -huh. But Christmas Eve, they would go out to the various lots and get trees that were then free because we mm -hmm. couldn't afford them. And they put that tree up in that cold room. And the few gifts that we had would be under the tree. And this was a repeat for a few years. And we just go in there real quick and, you know, grab whatever we got mm -hmm. and come back out to the dining room where we had a stove. Mm -hmm. uh, eventually we did get a stove in that room, but until we did that Christmas tree usually stayed up till about April, as fresh as it was when we put it up because the room was so cold. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wait, so y'all had a stove in the in the dining room and then in the in the parlor? Living room and the kitchen. What? Y'all stove? We had uh, uh, we had uh, in the kitchen we had a stove for a heat and we had uh uh a stove to cook on, like a, a gas stove that you have now, not so fancy mm -hmm. like the ones now. But yeah, yeah. And then at night, you had to, what they call, they banked those fires. Uh, they put it so that the fire didn't die out, but the embers would stay. Uh -huh. And then in the morning, they put fresh wood on and stoke it. Yeah. And stir up the, the embers and start it all over again. Yeah, a couple of uh, children got burned by them. Oh my God, they would get red hot sometimes. That was a, mm. oh. yeah, but that's the way Who we lived. Did Usually your dad did that or? My mother. Your mother, okay. Mm -hmm. hmm. Okay. Tell me about or describe a dream you remember. Mm. Recently or? Uh, yeah, yeah, recently. Or maybe even just your most memorable one. Well, I guess it would have to be when I share about my mother in the dream. Okay. Telling me that she loves me. Yeah. Hmm, okay. Um, 
tell me one thing you might change about yourself. <laughs> Other than my weight. Oh God. <laughs> but you're, you're small. What are you talking about? I um I would be more assertively ambitious. Okay. I mean, there are some things I want to do, but I just, I hold myself back. Mm. I mean, just like, you know, doing a Zoom Bible, you know, I thought about it, I thought about it, you know, people ask me to do it, and I'm like, because, you know, there's always new shallow in the back of my mind, mm. and that's crazy, because, mm -hmm. you know, God called me to be a minister, yep. and I have to minister, you know, and I wasn't really doing anything in New Shallow anyway, except sitting on the pew. Yeah. So, so that, um, I was thinking, but you know, I had started writing um, the play for my book. It's never too late. Yeah. And I worked on that some during the first couple couple of weeks, and so I really want to get back to that. Yeah. And. Uh, so what was your question <laughs> about uh, one thing you would change about yourself? Yeah, yeah. Just um, executing my dreams. Okay. All right. Well, Octavia Butler says, see to it, so be it. Mm -hmm. She will write that to herself in like her scribbles. And I end that within my um in my diary entries. And it helps me affirm what I want and mm -hmm. it kind of puts some pep in my step about what I know I need to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So think mm -hmm. about that. So be what one of the things, see I grew up uh, always hearing, first of all, children should be seen and not heard, which I totally disagree. I won't say I totally disagree with it, but for the most part I disagree with it. And also that you never toot your own horn. Mm. And that just kind of stays with you, you know? Yeah. Where other people, you know, they market themselves, they put themselves out there, and, you know, it's uh, it's difficult for me. To yeah. Do. And you have to. And I think the more you toot your own horn, the more confidence you get in your abilities and your talents and skills. Mm -hmm. And the more other people will believe it, too. Yeah, and then, I mean, I have people who are very, you know, complimentary about my skills and what I can do, and, you know, they tell me, you know, but, uh, yeah, so that would be the change. Yeah. Um, who is your best friend? would be me. Okay. <laughs> That's a good answer. Um, if you had a superpower, what would it be? Wow, if I had a superpower. My superpower, is that like a person or somebody or? Um, a superpower like a flight, um, um being invisible mm. maybe 
going from one place to the next in, you know, like a second. I forgot what that's called. Uh, uh-huh. Super strength. Mm. Wow. Man, that's a tough question. If I had a superpower, what would that be? And, and perhaps I'm thinking of it in a different light, but if I had a superpower, it would propel me into executing all my dreams. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's a good question. That's a good answer. Okay. Um, if you could live in another country for six months, what country mm. would you live in? Wow. I would say um, another country. For some reason, I always thought if I didn't mind flying, the one country that I would visit would be Switzerland. Okay. And I always thought that because I should see such beautiful landscapes of Switzerland. You know, just also nice and clean Mm -hmm. and the snow and all of that. And so I think it would be Switzerland. Just looks peaceful. It would um, feed into my desire to have greater self-knowledge of myself. Okay. Take me away. Give me time to explore that. Okay. Cool. Mm, Who growing up Anyway, who was your favorite singer or group? Oh, wow. All those people from the 60s? Wow. Would have to be the Supremes. Temptations. Okay. Hmm. What is your... What do you think the world will look like 200 years from now? Ooh. What do you hope for anyway? What I would hope for would be peace. That we would have finally gotten beyond racism. And it would take that long because you have these generations of white folk who have been taught to hate. Mm-hmm. And they would have to die off. And believing that somewhere along the way that another generation would start teaching their children love and not hate. You know, it's like, uh, I go back to the Bible when the Israelites were in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Um, they were delivered from Egypt where they were slaves. But there were times when they wanted to go back to Egypt because it was the known versus the unknown. And a lot of them had lost hope and faith that they were really going to go to the promised land that God had for them. Mm-hmm. So those non-believers, God killed off a whole generation of men over 40. Mm-hmm. 
because they were non-believers. And, you know, and they didn't think they were going to make it to the promised land. Yeah. When he had told them, I'm going to give you the promised land. Now, he didn't say the journey was going to be easy. You're just going to walk in and take it. But he did say it's yours. You know, you're going to have to, you're going to, have to fight for it. So when I look at the coronavirus, I don't know if that is just collateral damage because a lot of black people have died too, or is that a, a sort of cleansing? Mm. It's certainly a lesson that we are not in control of anything. That, that is true. You know? Yeah. So we've seen some inroads with racism because of the protests. Uh, you know, and George Floyd, Lloyd, forget his name. But, you know, I don't think his death was in vain. I don't think so either. Not at all, you know. So, uh, 200 years. The flip side of that, if we continue as we are, I would hope that God would come back and rapture us all. Jesus would return. Yeah. If we continue to go as we're going and get worse, mm-hmm. end it all. Yeah, I agree. Um, what is one secret you kept from your parents? The one secret that I kept from them showed up in my pregnancy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't have that. Okay. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I never, uh, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I just never had the kind of relationship with my mother that I have with my children or you have with your mother. You know, yeah. there weren't the girly talks or. Okay. You know, even when uh, I got my first period, all she said to me was, you know, you can get pregnant now. Oh, she wow. didn't tell me how you get pregnant or anything. Wow. That was the extent of the conversation. You know, you can get pregnant now. Wow. Hmm. You know? And, you know, back then, you just didn't have this conversation. You know, you never heard the word sex. Yeah. When I think of my children now and my grandchildren and the conversations I hear, my mother probably turned over her grave, okay? Yeah, my mother's very, was always very uh, explicit with us. Uh huh, uh huh. And it made me very uncomfortable. Uh, (laughs) And I I think, you know, it's good to have those conversations. The only, my only, I guess if I was uh, going to give any advice to my granddaughters and my great-granddaughters that they would ever ask me is don't have these multi-sexual relationships with men. Okay. You know, you ain't got to go to bed for every man you date. Okay. Yeah, I'm not saying that you do, but 
you know, I don't feel like I missed out on anything by only having two sexual partners. You know? Yeah. And, uh, and you know, and definitely no booty calls for a man. You know, if that's all he wants from you, you know? Yeah. It's just think more highly of yourself than that. Okay. Okay. And um, two more questions. Mm -hmm. What's one thing that you've learned from our conversation today? I probably talk too much. No, I already knew that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess one of the things I've learned is I, I may have told you that the first three weeks when I was doing some writing, the first three weeks I was in the house <clears throat> and I started writing about uh, the search for self. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what I've shared today, I had written uh, back there, you know, yeah. it's just so much to write having lived 77 years. Yeah. You know, but uh, I, I, th I think my children, and this is probably not the answer to your question, but if they were to, when I'm gone, if you all or my children were to read a lot of stuff, I mean, I have writings all over the place. I would probably come across as somebody who just wasn't content. Because mm -hmm. I write so much about the search for self and what am I supposed to be doing and what is my purpose? You know, when I think of all the things that I had done, you know, I, I spoke at the uh, Civic Center and, and Front of a group of 14,000 people before, you know. Wow, I didn't know that. See? Yeah. Uh, when I went to New Shallow, a uh, pastor would have like a revival at the Civic Center. Hmm. And one time during church, I was called to do something. And I shared whatever I shared, I can't remember now. And he said, Wow, I like that. He said, We go to the Civic Center. I want you to give that same little thought. Hmm. You know, and there's 14,000 people there, you know. Um, I, I am my own worst critic, but when I think of, you know, where I came from, you know, living in a house with no central air, no running water, no bathroom, and look at where I live now. It's not a palace, but it is to me compared to where I came from. You know, the thing that nobody talked about college in my house and the fact that, you know, I had the masters, you know, the, the things that I've done in life that I should have a sense of pride about, you know, instead of like, oh my God, what do I need to do? Yeah. So, um, so maybe that's flowing out of this uh, conversation. And I, I'm also learning that I see your interest and that you've learned so much more about me than you knew. Yeah. A whole lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. So that's a good thing. You know, it's crazy, but sometimes you think about dying, you be like, oh my God, I hope they remember me after I'm gone. <laughs> you know? Oh girl, yes. <laughs> then when you but when you when you think 
you know, further along the line, just think there's going to come a time and nobody down the line will even know, you know, they will maybe know of my existence, depending on how, you know, those after me share the legacy with, you know, succeeding generations. That's why we're doing this video. <laughs> you know, so uh, what about my hair though? But you're not going to do the video anyway. Yeah, we don't have to do the video. So, um, yeah, so. Yeah, it's 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 a good time for reflection. Yeah, although I do a lot of that anyway. Yeah, and maybe too much. You know, as G said, I'm a tortured soul. Yeah, there is a such thing as too much reflection. Sometimes just be. Yeah, yeah, and and um, and I get to that point sometimes. You know, who I am is enough. And I stay there for about five seconds, and then I'm off. Okay, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, but but I think it keeps me going, you know. Okay. Yeah. It keeps you thinking of the next step. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good. Okay. And my very last question: If you could give any advice to, uh the younger generations, what would it be? Wow. I would say the first thing would be uh, self-love, to have self-love. Because if you love yourself, you're not going to let other people mistreat you. That would be the first thing. I would also say be a lifetime learner. Okay. You know, there's always something new to learn. And uh, just be about love, especially your family. You know, that's, when you get right down to it, even though families can be dysfunctional and they have their issues. I mean, take our family. This is, this is who we are. This is all we got, you know, mm -hmm. when you think about it. Yeah. Family is so important. Thank you so much for tuning into the premiere episode of Bio and Audio. I hope you all enjoy listening to Doris's story. Follow us at Bio and Audio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for updates. Until next time.